Um, so I have a question about the, um, some of the things you're saying in terms of the gradual decline of Christian belief since the Enlightenment. So do you believe that that's um, happened gradually, or do you think there's punctuated events in our history since the Enlightenment that have eroded um, some of Christian um, kind of what you're talking about, like the the direct appreciation of Christian values in our society. Um, and linked to that, you, you talk about how we no longer have foundations, um, but do you not think they've perhaps been replaced by something else, such as you know media or, or something like that? So yeah, two parts to that. Firstly, punctuated or gradual, um, and then um, what's replaced our foundation rock. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the um, thoughtful question. And look, let me just say for everybody, um, uh, if I engage with your questions, um, you feel I've not done a great job or you'd like a follow-up, I'll stick around at the end as long as I'm able. So, um, so feel free to come and grab me. Uh, graduated or punctuated? Yeah, I, I don't think that the decline in kind of um, Christianity across the West has been uniform or has been a kind of straight line. And I think there are a numerous you know, kind of key events that have um, shifted things you know, kind of both ways. But I think the fundamental kind of move in the Enlightenment to an extent was enthroning humanity in the place where God was. So humanity is you know, really important under the Christian kind of understanding schema. Um, humanity kind of rules under God, but Enlightenment project was in some sense putting humanity at the top. Um, so I think once that, that kind of started to gather momentum, and arguably it was also because the church had done a really bad job as witness coming into the Enlightenment period as well. And so there had been constant need for renewal within the wider Western church. But I think particularly coming into the Enlightenment period, there was a disillusionment with the church, its wealth, its corruption, and there hadn't been sufficient renewal. Um, and so I think that accelerated it. I think that certain of the key events you could look at is particularly coming into the 20th century. The First and the Second World War had a huge effect, um, of course. And partly what they did, interestingly, was I think they slightly arrested the decline of Christianity and stopped it. And one of the reasons for that was um, because it was a pretty brutal assessment of humanism that all this scientific, all this technological advance just seemed to mean that we were more effective at killing one another. And so I think there's been a lot of searching about that. But right now, I think we're in a really interesting but challenging period where we're moving you know, into a situation where there are so many beliefs swirling around, and this maybe comes to the second part of your question about foundations, that it is very difficult to work out what we're building on now. And this has been called an age of suspicion or um, maybe the kind of post-truth age, it's sometimes called as well, post-modernity. Um, and I think what that kind of means is, there was a bit of graffiti on a wall in a, U a US university that said, we used to trust the, um, the generals, but Vietnam changed all that. We used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. We used to trust the scientists, but Three Mile Ironman changed all that. Now we have no one to trust. And you could substitute the things in for that, right? It doesn't need to be Vietnam, it could be Iraq, um, doesn't need to be, um, uh, I suppose, doesn't need to be the politicians. It could be cash for peerages or any other scandal that we've had or Brexit or something like that. It doesn't need to be the scientists. It could be global warming or some other you know, scandal, right? And so there's been erosion of trust. And I, I think what's happened is that each person now is asked to, to work out their own foundations, but that just lacks coherence. And also, that's a huge burden for every person to bear. 
you know, saying to every human being, build your own foundations, build the architecture of human values just the way you want. And if you don't have shared foundations, it's really difficult to have meaningful conversations. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel in society that that simple art of having a conversation well feels like instead we're just shouting at each other and missing each other. And maybe that's because we don't have shared foundations. So thanks, great question. And hopefully I can follow up with you afterwards if that's right. Yeah, great. Another question we had was, the church has forgotten who we are. <laughs> Inflection in your voice. Yeah, I do. Th I think it's one of the problems. I, I think, sadly, that, um, yeah, I mean, when you say something like the church is obviously a really big, broad term, but I certainly think it's really important that the church recognizes the role that it needs to have in re-articulating and renewing the beliefs that underpin our values. Um, and that I think there's a real problem if we, if we don't do that. And I think people are you know, drawing blanks in some important conversations about that. And authenticity is a really important thing for our age. And so there's a call for Christians and the church to be authentic and say, this is what we believe, um, and this is the implications of it. And not to do it in a holier-than-thou way, but to do it in a grace and truth way that says this is the truth, this is where human dignity comes from, this is where human equality comes from, be articulate about that. But not only just to talk a good game, I think there's something very compelling about the community, and the community needs to be modeling that. So it should be that when you come into church, you see that lived out, and you see it in the love for one another, in the care for the vulnerable. And yeah, I think that's where you don't see that, that is because the church has forgotten it implicitly, or functionally speaking at least. So we need to step up. Um, so, another one that kind of links is, how do you feel us as Christians can be better allies in the current climate we live in? Well, I think the first thing is please notice that the dynamic here is not a, a we've got the truth, you don't have the truth dynamic, right? So when Jesus came, John 1.14, he's described as being full of grace and truth. And that's important because grace means that as a Christian, I believe that I am morally flawed and therefore it is not me being more moral or more intellectual or more articulate that makes me accepted before God. It is because God has loved me, sent his son to die for me and to renew the image of Christ in me that that's what makes me a Christian. And therefore, partly I need to be good at listening because I genuinely do believe that there'll be people out there who are more morally articulate, more thought through than me, because that's not what defines me. So I want to be good at listening and be gracious to people, and also recognizing that we all get this wrong. All of us don't treat people with equality and dignity all of the time. That's the sad truth. And therefore, there needs to be grace for forgiveness when we get it wrong. So, so there needs to be an articulation of the truth of Christianity, but also the dynamic of grace that says we all get this wrong, and I get this wrong, and I want to therefore grow, and I want to help you to grow, and I want to forgive you when you get things wrong, and you to forgive me, and then we can have a meaningful conversation about this. I sometimes think the culture, the cancel culture, it just kills conversation, because everyone's so afraid of getting it wrong, and getting plastered all over Twitter, there's no conversation there. So what's the antidote to that? Grace, because that's the kind of nasty truth edge, right, cancel culture. But grace changes that and says, hey, we all get it wrong, don't cancel people. Forgive them and have the conversation. Otherwise, no one's left standing. That's it. Let's keep having those conversations. Um, and so how do you match up the position you've argued about Christianity as an agent for dignity and equality with the Crusades, recent abuse scandals, etc.? Yeah. Well, I think... Um, 
that when you look, I mean, I think this is part of the challenge of what happened in the Enlightenment is that because the church had got it wrong in some important areas, there was then a kind of saying, well, then for God must have got it wrong or Jesus Christ must have got it wrong. And, um, and so therefore there are areas where the church does get things wrong and it's right that that should be called out. But please notice when Jesus Christ comes in the New Testament, one of the key things he does is he takes on the religious establishment and calls it to repent and renew and change. And that's actually, in some sense, humanly speaking, what gets him crucified, because the religious authorities are the ones who you know, work with the Roman authorities to put him on the cross. So in other words, there always needs to be that self-reflection within the church and that repentance, which means saying, we've got this wrong, we need to change, we need to renew, we need to be different, we need to receive God's forgiveness. And so where the church historically has got into difficulty is where it's neglected that dynamic of grace and instead just maybe been banging on about the truth but with no grace. Um, and so I, I think some of those examples um, are examples where that's happened and the church needs to be a, a place of renewal and change um, and hear that call for Christ of if the church doesn't, he promises that actually he's going to remove his presence from the church. And so we need to take that seriously and listen to that call. So you talked about equality of race, gender, socioeconomic, age, and disability. What about the rights and values of those who identify as LGBTQ+. Thank you very much for asking. Um, and look, you know, I'm conscious in all of this that these questions, some might be abstract and some might be personal. So please forgive me if when I'm speaking in general and generalizations, it's a personal thing for you. I'm a pastor first and a speaker second, so I'd love to chat to you about um, any of these issues or, or that issue in particular. Look, the, the first thing is to say, I suppose, on this is that our culture is always trying to push us on, on moral questions, particularly around sexuality, into two lanes. I don't know if you've been bowling recently, but, you know, in bowling, if you're really bad, you put those buffers up either side and you can just bounce the ball safely down the track and it'll, you're guaranteed to hit something at the end of it, right? But life's not like that, and our culture's not like that, and we're presented with two lanes that our culture's always trying to push the bowling ball into. One lane is legalism, and the other lane is license, and this is particularly true on sexual matters. So legalism says, you know, because you might make a mistake in some area or because you don't conform to a certain standard, you're dismissed, you're judged, you're out of here. And, and authentically, I think some aspects of the church, that has been the tone of voice minimum, if not the content of the voice that's come across on the issue of LGBTQ rights. And that is wrong, and that is not the gospel. The gospel is not legalism that says you are valued and judged on the basis of whether or not you get it all right. That is legalism. That is explicitly not what Jesus teaches. He teaches grace and forgiveness for all who come to him. But the other extreme is license, which says anything goes. As long as it's done between consenting adults, anything goes. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Recognize the Disney song. Um, and that, that license, that licentiousness is just not livable because there are boundaries. There are rights and wrongs, particularly in areas like sexuality when the stakes are so high. Now, here's the question. If the, how can the church authentically articulate not legalism, not license? What's the difference? Grace, grace and truth, which is to say there are boundaries around human sexuality of what is permissible and what is not permissible, of what will lead to flourishing and blessing and what won't. 
but you are not defined by whether you get it right all the time or get it wrong. And so therefore, just to say that the way that works out for us, the church community, is we have people who have homosexual desires in our church family. We have people who are grappling with different issues, many are varied around transgender within our church family. And they are welcome and they are loved and they're there as part of the community. But they're also trying to work out what it looks like to live the call for Christ in that area. Not listening to the voice of the culture, but instead listening to what the Bible says. And that's deeply challenging, and they need the community and the support around them. But we're always keen to emphasize them. There are rights and wrongs in these issues, but it doesn't define you. And so you're accepted and you're loved. You're defined by Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And that's just the, the bowling ball. It's tough to get it straight down the middle, as you know. And sometimes the church gets it wrong, but that's what it looks like. So we're trying to avoid the cultural license, license and legalism in this area. Thank you. Um, are you suggesting there should be some form of a return to the alignment of church and state? Should the church really have a role in politics or government? <laughs> Big question. Um, yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, I'm a minister in the Church of England, so there is some alignment between church and state. I'm not going to get into that particular <laughs> debate now. I wasn't suggesting that in the talk, no. What I was suppose I was suggesting is, um, maybe to put it on the terms of that, is that if um, Jesus Christ has loved us and given himself for us and died for us, then he becomes the most important things in our life, the thing, person in our life when we get that. And therefore, he infuses every aspect of life because he is life and he's given us the gift of life. And so therefore, he's Lord of all life because he's made it and he's redeemed it and he rules it all. It has his crown over it all. So there is not one square inch that he's not Lord of. And that includes politics, and that includes human rights, and that includes economics, and that includes the mundane things of taking out the bins or having a difficult conversation with your child when they're throwing a tantrum. You know, it's every aspect of life. And so I'm not making a call on the state-church distinction. What I'm saying is, because of all that Jesus has done, politics and human rights and human dignity are under his lordship, and we need to think what that looks like uh, and live that out. Um, this will be the last question, I think, okay. for you, Pastor Pete. <laughs> Jewish values help for strangers before Christianity values reinforces. Do you think Christianity reinforced the Jewish beliefs, for example, the Ten Commandments? Yeah, so, the, I mean... Jesus was a Jew, and particularly, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew, is pre presented very much as a Torah, that is the Old Testament Jewish law, fulfiller. He comes to fulfill the law. He himself says, don't think I've come to abolish the Torah. I've not come to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill the Torah. But here's the thing about fulfillment. Fulfillment is a movement forwards that's consistent with, but doesn't leave it where it is. And so when Jesus comes, he takes the Old Testament forward to its fulfillment. He shows how it's all been about him. So, for example, the Ten Commandments are not primarily legalism. They're not saying, here's the way to live for God to be happy with you. The Ten Commandments are framed by, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Israel. In other words, that is a picture of redemption in the Old Testament. I saved you, I redeemed you, I rescued you. Since I have done that for you, so now go and live this way. And in the same way, when Jesus Christ comes, he says, I have come to rescue you, to forgive you, to wash you clean for your failures. Since I have done that for you, 
now so go and live for me in this really important area of human dignity, human equality. Live out your humanity and freedom of flourishing for me. And so he takes the Old Testament law there, but he fulfills it and takes it forward in his life, death, and resurrection. So he's the authentic Jew. And in fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 2. He says, a Jew is not one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward, but Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is, the, is in the heart, by the Spirit, as you come to know Christ, not by the written law alone. So, yeah, so Jesus is the, the law fulfiller, and therefore we need to kind of follow that path of fulfillment as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Pete. Thank you. And look, can I just say thank you so much for your questions, and I, I will stick around at the end. I'd love to chat more. I'll be off towards the back. So, Absolutely. Over. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time.